Good morning, everybody. Two scriptures that I'd like to look at <clears throat> this morning. First one is found in Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. And then the second one is in the book of Romans, chapter 12. In Luke 11, we find this passage that I think is familiar um, to us. Not going to read all of it, but in the first verse we have the setting. Came to pass as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John, that's John the Baptist, also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He said to them, which of you? He goes beyond the question that they ask him. Because here he's teaching them about uh, not, not only the spirit in which they are to pray or we're to pray, but what's the ultimate thing we can pray? Really, we could entitle part of this 11th chapter, Steps to the Ultimate Prayer. There is no greater prayer that we could pray than the one Jesus suggests here. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight, that's your neighbor, and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, that's your friend that you went to, and say, don't bother me. The door is shut, my children are with me in bed, I cannot rise and give you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because of his friendship, if he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he just keeps knocking at the door. He will rise and give him as many as he needs. And I say unto you, now he takes that illustration, turns it to the relationship of children of God to God, our Father. I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Those three words, ask, seek, knock, are present tense. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking, keep on knocking. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds. To him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil... Now, that doesn't mean, you know, hellions. It just means uh, fallen and, and maybe, in some cases, sinful, even if you're not where you should be with God. You know how to give good things to your children. 
If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Then Romans chapter 12 Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Beseech is a strong word here. It's beg. I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want to conclude today with what I've spent, I don't know, four or five Sundays, talking to us about being filled with the Spirit. And I want to conclude today that whole subject with how are we to be filled? Not only that there is such a thing, that we should be filled, we need to be filled. We're to seek that. We're told in Scripture to seek it. But what's the how? How are we filled with the Holy Spirit? It's exceedingly simple. And I want to make sure that we keep it that way. There's a thought um, that I've had on this whole subject, maybe to look at the entire picture. We lost our life to sin. All of us have sinned, it says, and come short of the glory of God. And when we engage in the habitual practice of sinning, we're severed from God. We do not enjoy the light and life and love of God in our hearts. We're lost, we, and we've lost our lives. When we are converted, when we get saved, when we, when we become a Christian, we get life, spiritual life. We regain what we lost as a human race. God gives us life. He makes us alive. Fills our hearts with light and forgiveness and grace and help to walk a new pathway. And as I used a couple weeks ago, A.W. Tozer's simple little summary of the whole plan of salvation is we must forsake our sins and then go on to forsake ourselves. And really what we're doing is that life God gives us when we repent, turn from sin, trust in Him and ask His forgiveness. We then down the road after the receiving of that life in our hearts are called by God simply to turn around and give that life he gave to us back to him to lay it at his feet and say, Lord, 
you gave me everything I am and have, and it is my duty to see that in my heart remains a little bit of grabbiness. <laughs> I want to hang on to this. I, I'm so grateful for the life you gave me, but I want to make sure that that life plays out this way and this way and this way and that you do this and you do that and you don't make me do this and you don't take that away from me. That's what Tozer's point, I have to come to a place where I give that life God gave me in the first place back to him and say, Lord, thy will be done. We just read it here that we're to pray every day. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I know of no angels in heaven that are bickering, dickering, negotiating with God as to what their lives ought to be. And these words Jesus meant. There's a place that we're to come to where we give ourselves and the life that he gave us back to him for his total use in whatever way he wants. In that is finally the rest, the peace that God's put a hunger for in our hearts. And there is a peace and joy in our hearts knowing God's got this. He's got me. He's got my life. And Lord, whatever, whatever, thy will be done. There are then, there are three things Three steps, three, I guess you could say, actions in being filled with the Spirit, which Jesus told his disciples. The last thing he said to them, you stay in Jerusalem until you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. That giving of ourselves to him is the human requirement and condition for the filling. I'll get to that in a minute. First of all, there just needs to be in our hearts, deep in our hearts, a recognition and a confession. And the confession is simply this. I have a lack. As a believer, as a Christian, I, I sense a lack. I think I've mentioned this before, quoted this before. One of the most famous devotionals that across all denominational lines people read is Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. And in there, he confesses that four years after being soundly converted and walking with God and ministering for God, he said, the inward struggle to try to quit being self-willed and self-directed and excessively defensive of my rights and my ways, even with God. He said, I, and this is a strong term, and I've wondered at times if he went too far in what he said. But he said, I, I became so despairing of this divided heart that I sensed I had that I wondered if even Christianity itself was a fraud. It wasn't panning out like I thought. There's a confession that we have to make 
that I have a lack. The rich young ruler that ran, it says he ran. And here, he was very well-to-do. Scripture says he was very rich. Well, he humbled himself to the point of everybody knew him. He had the house up on the hill. He had the estate, and he, had the, he ran the bank. And, he, and he's running, foolishly looking, running to Jesus and falls down in front of him. And he said, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. So he says, I, I, I have. I have been doing those things. I'm not disobedient to God. I'm not a rebel against God. I don't hate God. I'm following God to the best of my abilities. Jesus then put it in his case. doesn't mean for everybody, but in his case, he put his finger on it. He says, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And then you come and follow me. A lot of people think, a lot of Bible scholars think, this was a man who's nameless, but maybe he would have been one of the twelve because Jesus gave him such a special invitation. You follow me. But what did he do? It says he went away very sorrowful at that requirement that he divest himself of, of his prestige and popularity and his possessions. He hung on to those instead of possibly being one of the twelve. He walked away, it said, very sorrowful because he was very rich. That was a tall order. And as far as we know, and Jesus never chased him. And then Jesus turned to the disciples and he said, you know, if you won't, if you basically, you give up your life here, you'll save it for eternity. You hang on to it here, you'll lose it for eternity. There's a confession then that we make. Like that rich young ruler, kept all the commandments of God, and I believe walked as best he knew with God. But he said, what lack I yet? What do I still lack? I sense there's a level of peace and joy and surrender and faith that I, I strive for but I don't have. We have to make a confession. Lord, I sense a lack. Something else. I need something more. God put that in our hearts. So there has to be the confession, like the man in the parable in Luke. This man has a friend, comes to him at midnight, and he realizes, my cupboards are bare. I don't have anything to feed him. So he humbles himself, goes to his neighbor, and he says, I got a friend, a traveler that's come to me, and he has to confess to his neighbor, I'm empty. I don't have an extra supply that I can give to this man. Can you give me what I need? And he keeps beating on the door until the neighbor finally says, okay, okay, okay. And gives him what he needs. And Jesus draws the distinction. This is really the only reason he got up and gave him food wasn't because he was friends. I don't know if that put a strain on the friendship. But he said it wasn't just because they were friends. It was simply because he wouldn't stop beating on the door. So they gave it to him. 
He set that up as a contrast. Then he says, how much more will your Father in heaven give you? But to seek to receive something. i got to make a confession. I have a need. In this case, I need to be filled. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the double-mindedness purged from my heart. So the first thing is to acknowledge I have a need. Then, secondly, there is what we call consecrations, used all through the Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And the passage we read here from Romans, present yourselves a living sacrifice. Now, why does he say a living sacrifice? Because a sacrifice, especially in the Old Testament, and even in the New in the death of Jesus, was a death. The offering was put to death, the blood sprinkled on the offerer, and then that offering was burned on the altar. Paul's not saying that we're to give that kind of a sacrifice, but we are to give our whole selves as a living sacrifice. Not one that's burned up, but one that is consecrated to God for his total use. There's a good little phrase, um, another of Tozer, that I think I'll read a little bit. I don't normally read um, too much to you, but I want to read this. Tozer says, these words, before there can be a filling, there must be an emptying. Does that make sense? Yeah. Before there can be a filling, there must be an emptying. That process is called consecration. I give myself, my ambitions, my hopes, my desires, my dearly held plans, my expectations out of life. All these wants and needs that aren't in and of themselves bad. But I have to consecrate myself completely to God. So, Tozer goes on, before God can fill us with himself, we must first be emptied of ourselves. It is this emptying that brings often the painful disappointment and despair of self which so many persons have complained just prior to their new and radiant experience. Consecrating yourself completely to God, we are tempted often with the fears as we, as we pray and seek. And this may take some time. I'm not talking about years but it may very unlikely that this process occurs. This scripture calls it dying. That this dying occurs, you know, in an hour and a half. It's a process where God shows me things, hopes, agendas, ambitions in our hearts that he's saying to me, you got to let go of that. 
You let me, you let me determine your agendas, your ambitions, the pathway of your life. That's my business. That isn't yours. I gave you this life. You give it back to me, the control of it. I have to do that. And that is sometimes a painful process. I, I don't know, I hope most of you know this story, but I think there's a physical illustration of it. Back when Jacob had run away from home because he'd tricked Esau and stolen his birthright and was just a crook, and he runs off uh, to way up north, ostensibly to go look for a wife, but basically Isaac and Rebekah, his mom and dad, sent him away because Esau said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish him off. And so suddenly he's looking for a wife, and so he goes north about 300 miles. His first night or so out, he meets God at a place called Bethel, house of God. And God appeared to him. And he said, Jacob woke up in the morning after this dream where God said, Jacob, I'll be with you. I'll build a house for you. I mean, a, a, a life. And Jacob woke up and he said, God's here. And I never even knew it. He said, this is the very gate of heaven. Yeah, it was the gate of heaven. It was his new birth. It was when Isaac or Jacob, who had walked against God, woke up, and the presence of God had been always with him, but he didn't even know it. He goes on, he spends 20 years there um, in Paden Aram. He then, at the word of the Lord, heads back home. He figures, he isn't for sure, but I know he figures, I hope Esau's had 20 years to get over this, what I did to him. Um, tricked him and, and deceived him. Well, he finds out that Esau's coming to meet him. That sounds great. Servants came to him and they said, Isaac's on his way to meet you. Then they had another sentence. And he's got 400 men with him. Who, co who goes to a family reunion <laughs> with 400 armed guys? Suddenly, Jacob realizes, <laughs> I'm in trouble. And so here's what he does. He offers, he sends across this little brook where he was camped to placate Esau. He sends across his possessions, all of them, then his family. And he does it in order of what he loves the least. He gave, I think, you know, some, maybe a couple of mangy sheep or whatever, they go first. But he sends even the more valuable animals last. He sends, you know, but, and he divides them up into these little groups, 40, 50 cattle and a servant. He gets done with all of these possessions. He divests himself. He consecrates it. I'm giving it away hoping that I get out of this by the skin of my teeth. Then he sends over his family. But they're in order. He has children of two concubines. 
And then he has children of his two wives. And one wife, Leah, was loved far less than his other wife, Rachel. So he sends the concubine and children of Leah first. Then he sends the concubine and children of Rachel. Then he sends Leah and the children he had by her. And lastly, he sends Rachel and the, just the, the one boy at that point. Joseph, dearest to him, the one he made the coat of many colors for. You see that? He got closer and closer to the depth of his heart, what mattered most to him. He sacrificed first what maybe wasn't that big of a sacrifice. But then he got down to where, and then there is such, I love this scripture, it's not profound in the sense, but all that it means. It says he sent all his possessions, his family, all he had over the brook. And then it says, and Jacob was left alone. That's where God was. God was after him for 20 years to get him to that spot where he, there was nothing left. And that's where we have, it says, that kind of somewhat of a mystery. The angel of the Lord, it said, wrestled with him. And Jacob finally says to him, to the angel, give me a blessing. Give me a blessing. And then the angel asks that simple little question, but it's the deepest question Jacob had ever had to answer. The angel said, before I bless you, tell me your name. He said, it's Jacob. Now, God knew his name. Jacob meant deceiver, schemer, always working some angle to benefit him. That's what he had done with his brother Esau. That's frankly why he, why he was in this trouble. Still, my name's Jacob. And the angel who uh, rightly Jacob immediately identifies as God, says, the angel spoke to him immediately and said, we're not going to call you Jacob anymore. But Israel, which is prince of God, he got a name change and a nature change. It wasn't Jacob anymore. Oh, he still looked like Jacob. And he still was in the cattle business and so forth. But he wasn't Jacob anymore. Now, this act, which may take some time, of consecration is an, the emptying act. We have to say, Lord, you can have this, you can have this, you can have this. I take my hands off that. I, I, I have my desires and wishes. Jesus himself said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He represented us and exemplified our, our attitude. Lord, thy will be done. 
I don't have any rights in reality. And so what I'm really doing, I'm not giving up my rights. I'm merely admitting that I've never had any to start with. Not with God. He's got all the rights. But He's good. I can trust Him. He won't harm me. It's overcoming that suspicion that He will harm me that keeps us from saying, Lord, Thy will be done. Because immediately something in here says, yeah, but what if He does this? What if He does that? What if He won't do this? What? I can't go there. There's the self-denial. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, what did He say? Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. We have to. We have to. Only then do we get the receive the fullness of God. I'll just mention this. Um, I don't know how many of you maybe have read in the news recently here about the revival that's taking place back in Kentucky. Um, I know a lot about that college. Um, thought about going there um, when I got saved. and uh, But God diverted me to another school where he sent somebody from California that I was supposed to meet. Um, but I strongly considered going there. Um, my nephew by marriage is the president of Asbury. My sister's daughter then and my sister's been talking to me every day virtually about what's going on there praying and she said please pray that this doesn't get hijacked because the work of the devil and humans is always to try to take over and organize what God started and it could get hijacked and, and then you got wackiness going on so at any rate but she talked to me just I think it was two days ago and she said that her daughter Maria was in the chapel and there was a student that was very crowded but he stood up out of his seat turned around and was taking a couple of pictures on his phone of the empty chair that he'd just been sitting in and Maria asked him you know what what are you doing he said, I want to take a picture. And he said, I'm going to keep it. He said, because that's where I died. Now, he didn't die physically. You know what I mean. But he died to himself. Right there. We can experience that. That's what God told us to do. He said, take up your what? Cross. What's the cross? A cross is an instrument of death. So when he said, if you want to follow me, you die. You get out of the way. That's consecration. Finally, then, there is the act of faith or confidence. We have confidence that, first of all, this is the will of the Lord that you be filled with the Spirit. 
Second, that this God is powerful enough to do that for us. Third, that this God is through and through good so that he is faithful to do what he promised. Not only able, but that he's faithful. He's a father <clears throat> that would never give a snake if we asked for an egg. How much more, Jesus said, how much further your heavenly father not only wants to, but is faithful and trustworthy to fill us with his Holy Spirit. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, can you get any simpler than that? And he meant it as the, as the almost matter-of-fact simplicity of a child saying, you know, can I have a fried egg sandwich? And, and, and the father cooks up a scorpion? No, Jesus, God's not like that. You ask him to fill the need that you've confessed. You've given yourself to him. Consecration, by the way, is, the, is ours to do. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is God's to do. And the perfect parallel here, we should be used to it, is the new birth. What do we do to be born again? Repent. That's mine to do. God doesn't repent. He helps me to repent. But mine to do is to repent and believe. Forgiveness is the result. That's God's act. In the second work of grace, I am to consecrate. I'm to die to myself. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live. I die to myself, I consecrate, and then I trust him that he will. Here's what he does. He takes what I've given to him, and he cleanses what he can't use, and he enhances what he can And then, then he can use us freely. Good illustration that um, Richard Taylor gives in one of his books <clears throat> just says this. We are, we're clay in the hands of the master potter. And he said, first of all, the potter has to own the clay. He takes the clay, he puts it on the wheel, it's his. He purchases us, the new birth. And he has a vessel in mind that he wants to make out of us. Whatever, it's up to him. It's not ours to determine that. It's up to him. He can't easily make that vase because that clay on the potter's wheel is not pure. It's not clean. It's got little bits of rock and junk in it. The clay itself isn't moldable as he needs it to be. So what he does is purges us, 
of that which prohibits and hinders his full, easy, flexible usage of us. Now, what does he have? Once he's purified that clay, he has, an, he has a perfect base standing on that potter, potter's wheel all done. No. We still might be a pretty weird-looking lump of clay, but we're clean. It's clean. Now he doesn't face resistance when he makes a neck on it, when he makes wider sides. When he can do what he wants. That's the aim when I get out of the road. So, confess that I have a need and that I want that need filled. Give myself wholly unto him, getting out of the way so he can do what he wants to do. And three, trust. Believe that he is not going to set before us the infilling of the Holy Spirit and then give us a scorpion or a rock if I ask for food. My Heavenly Father will do it. Here's what I want us to do. I think that at least through my years of pastoring, the business of a Christian, a believer who's still, who is yet carnal. God, by the way, isn't mad at us. We're not on the road to hell. He's not furious and about to beat us on the side of the head. Not at all. He's for us. Our name's written in his book. He is claiming us as, you're my child. So I approach him then, and I think as he shows us areas of our life, it's kind of like I mentioned a couple weeks ago when Liz got saved and she goes off to this Bible college where she had no idea of the light that was going to come into her world, meeting me in about a month, where she prayed and she said, Lord, I'll do anything you want except she corrected me, oh, by the way, when I told that story a couple weeks ago. She said there were two things you didn't want to do. She said, I don't want to be a missionary, and I'm not going to marry a preacher. God will talk to you about that, even in a sense trivial. He knows what you think he shouldn't do with your life. He knows what you don't want to do. He knows what you expect him he better do for you. He knows that, and he knows how he can pay. You know that deep hidden, you don't want to do that, you'll do anything else? I know about that. Too bad you brought that up. Because you're going to have to give up your end. I'm not putting up with it. I want us to take the time. And I think that sometimes, you know, an in altar invitation to come and pray about something this deep is not always the best route. I think there's alone time that we need to let God search our hearts and show us what we're still hanging on to or what we're not, we're disgruntled about that 
maybe God's brought into our life, whatever it is, He knows what it is. He knows how to re reveal it to us. And I think that takes some quiet time, some seeking time, and some private prayer time to come to the place on each thing God would show me. Lord, all right, I give that to you. I put it in your hands, and I'll leave it there by your grace. I won't go back and pick it up. It's yours. Then he can lead us to place where we trust him to quietly, deeply, peaceably fill our hearts with perfect love towards him and utter death <laughs> to our ways. That's what we, that's what God wants to get every human being. That's the point he wants to get us to. So I want to just have you, while Dan dismisses us with prayer, I want us to just pray, ask God to begin. Um, if we need, if we know this is a need we yet have, that he begins to reveal our hearts to us and show us where we need to give things over to him and come to the place then where we trust him to take what he, we've given to him and discard what he can't use, purify what he can, and have his way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as my voice pierces the quietness of this sanctuary, I pray in your name that it does not interrupt the conversation that you're having in hearts in here. That my voice would be not what people are listening for, but it's your voice that we need. We know why we need this. We know what sanctification in a purified heart looks like now. And this morning we've learned how to go about allowing you to do that deeper work. So to echo our pastor's request, help us, Lord, this week, today, yet this week, to sit quietly in our prayer time and in our quiet time, just to sit still and listen and allow you to speak into our lives, Lord, in a way that maybe we've never done before. If anyone in here is like me, we're really good at praying and talking and worshiping, but not real good at sitting still and listening. So help us to be quiet, to be still, and know that you are the Lord and that there is a work that you desire to do in each one of us. Purified hearts at this point are not, Lord. We are still walking with you. So no matter what state we sit in, maybe unsaved, maybe saved, maybe sanctified, there's still work to be done. Help us to be obedient to that and do it all to your glory, Lord, and always remembering it is your grace that enables us to live out this life. So, Father, speak to us, help us, grow us, purify us until we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.